price that he paid for us to cleanse us from sin and restore us to fellowship with the Father on Friday evening. And beginning early this morning with a beautiful sunrise over Long Lake at quarter till six this morning. We come to the opportunity to just be reminded together and to rejoice together that we do not have a religion. That we do not have a lot of formality and a lot of uh, hope in ritual, but we have a relationship with a risen Savior who is the Lord Jesus Christ, risen, enthroned at the Father's right hand, seated in glory, and one day this risen Savior is going to come back and receive us into His presence in, in a glorious celebration that will last forever and forever. And we do not have to fear the grave any longer because Jesus' grave is empty. I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Psalms. And while you're turning there, we're going to be looking at Psalm 24. But I want to give you just a little bit of background information on the three Psalms beginning in 22, 23, and 24. You know... Bible scholars have recognized for centuries, including the Jewish scholars of Jesus' own day, that all of the Old Testament speaks of Messiah. That throughout the Old Testament, God has been preparing a people and the world for the fullness of time when Jesus would come. And so throughout the Old Testament, there are portions of Scripture that we call messianic. They pertain to the Messiah. And even though they have a particular time and occasion in which they were written, they nonetheless have a foreshadowing, an anticipation of another time, a future time, when Jesus would come the Messiah. Now we know from our New Testament that his own people did not recognize him when he appeared as the suffering servant because they expected a conquering king. And they did not anticipate that someone who would come uh, humbly born in Bethlehem's stable and living in Nazareth and walking the streets of Galilee and Palatine as, well, he wasn't exactly ordinary by any stretch of the imagination, but he didn't look all that impressive as a king. And so they missed him. Little did they realize that the Old Testament forecast two arrivals. First, as the suffering servant of the Lord, and then as the conquering King of glory. But we have some interesting passages of Scripture. Psalm 22, 23, and 24 form this trilogy of messianic psalms, psalms that anticipate Jesus Christ. And Psalm 22 describes in significant detail the crucifixion. 
that's all the more interesting because in David's day, crucifixion was not really known or practiced as a means of execution. And yet David, who wrote the 22nd Psalm, describes the spectacle, the physiological experience, and the, the imagery of a crucifixion scene prophetically envisioning Jesus Christ on the cross. It is so clearly portrayed in Isaiah 53 that I'm told that uh, the, the Jewish reading of Scripture does not include Isaiah 53 because the rabbis are afraid that the obvious affirmation of Jesus on the cross would be recognized and it would cause confusion. And so better not to confuse the people and to leave it out. But Psalm 22 very graphically portrays as well a crucifixion scene. And then we have this interlude in the 23rd Psalm where the nature of our Lord Jesus is so beautifully portrayed when the psalmist says, The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not be afraid, for He is with me. His rod and His staff, they give me comfort. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil. That's a picture of the beautiful healing care of Jesus soothing our hurts. My cup overflows in His presence. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's this lovely pastoral interlude picturing the care that Jesus has for us. And then in Psalm 24, the picture turns and it asks the question, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? (laughs) Who can stand in the place where God is? Begins by reminding us that all of the earth is the Lord's and all the fullness of it, that He made everything, He owns everything. He is the master and, and, and maker of the universe and all the world and all that it contains. Who can stand with him? But we're told that David wrote this psalm on the occasion of bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. You remember that it had been captured. And David went after it. And the first attempt to bring it to Jerusalem uh, failed because without following the right procedure, actually resulted in the death of one man, and, and so the ark kind of stopped. And David uh, got before the Lord and said, kind of in essence, Lord, what have I done wrong? And then he went back and appropriately prepared to move the ark of the covenant into the city of Jerusalem into a special tabernacle that he would make for it. Solomon's temple wasn't built yet. Solomon wasn't even built yet. But... uh But David anticipated the time when there would be a glorious place for God in Jerusalem. And and so, 
the occasion was to go and retrieve the ark from its temporary place and bring it into Jerusalem, which represented the ark, the, the presence of the Lord. And David wrote the psalm as they would be approaching the gates of Jerusalem in verses 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory can come in. We learn that the rabbis in rabbinic tradition had chosen seven psalms for daily worship throughout the week. Each week, these psalms would be repeated. They were Psalms 24, 48, 82, 94, 81, 93, and 92. Seven psalms that would be read as a part of daily devotions each day of the week. And guess which one they chose for the first day of a new week, but Psalm 24. Their holy day, their worship day, was always the seventh day, the Sabbath. But they chose Psalm 24 to begin the new week, the first day of a new opportunity. And that is the day that Jesus rose from the grave. It is the day that we, the church of Jesus Christ, have come to celebrate as Resurrection Day. And coincidentally, the rabbis selected this psalm to be the devotional reading for the first day of the week. And as they would read this psalm and contemplate the Lord coming into His temple, and, and meditating on who it is that can dwell in the place where God is. They would read these last verses. Lift up your head, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory can come in. Who is the King of glory? The psalmist asked. The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. And then the stanza somewhat repeats. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the... King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And as we look at these last four verses together, one of the things that I, I want to cause us to ponder this morning is who is this King of glory? What is His nature? What is He like? And, and what is the occasion of this psalm that brings to mind the glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ who ascends not into the temple of Jerusalem, but the temple in the heavenlies. You know, the temple on the earth was patterned. It was given to Moses and the dimensions were patterned after the imagery of an eternal dwelling place of God in the heavenlies. The Bible tells us that God is present everywhere in His universe all at once. He is not limited by space and time. And yet, we are also given imagery of what His court would be like, what His temple would be like. Isaiah says, I, I was in the temple on the Lord's day and I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His glory filled the temple. In Revelation, we're, giving, we're given an image of God upon the throne and the Lamb of God. 
there with Him, our Lord Jesus Christ in glory. And so even though God is omnipresent, we are given imagery that also suggests a locale where He reigns in glory and might and power. And this psalm anticipates the Lord Jesus rising from the grave and entering that heavenly temple as the gates of heaven open wide to receive the triumphant King. The first time the question is asked, who is the King of glory? The answer is given, it is the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. We don't always think of Jesus as being a warrior. Because we see Him walking upon this earth with compassion, with tenderness, healing the sick, restoring sight to the blind, raising the dead to comfort those who are afflicted in in the most profound comfort, to give them back their loved one who has died. We see Him feeding a hungry multitude we find him speaking with tenderness to a woman caught in the very act of adultery and bringing conviction upon her wicked accusers and then tenderly bringing her into the forgiveness of God and releasing her. We don't think of him as a warrior. But I was especially stirred this last week, and particularly Friday night, as the music from the Passion was selected and it was dark and haunting and brooding. Those of you that were here know the, 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 the minor tones and the Mideastern haunting sense of that music. And I tried to imagine Jesus in the court of Pilate being beaten with that cat of nine tails strands of leather wetted with bits of bone and rock tied into it. Those who were beaten with that, if they survived, were never the same again. They were scarred and brutalized. Their skin was shredded. And I thought about the battle that Jesus was facing in that court as he was tied to a post probably with his back exposed, and the centurion that was the expert in the flagellation was whipping him. Have you ever thought about the fact that Satan did not want Jesus to go to the cross? We often see Him as putting Jesus on the cross. Men put Jesus on the cross. Satan wanted to avert that moment. He wanted to bring a stop to it. Because he knew that the cross would be his defeat. There was a time when Jesus was teaching the multitudes and, and uh, he was near the face of a cliff and the 
Pharisees were so angry with him, they were going to push him off the cliff and, and, and basically stone him and kill him. And the scripture says he passed through the crowd and escaped. That was an attempt to kill him before the cross. We're told about a time when he was with his disciples asleep in a boat that was in the midst of a storm so fierce it was about to go down. And Jesus was quietly sleeping. How can you sleep when your boat is about to sink in, in, a, in a fierce storm? Because he knew that he would not die in that sea. He was going to die on a cross and nothing could prevent that. So he was fine with the circumstances. And when his disciples in their fear woke him up and said, don't you care that we're perishing? He kind of rubbed the sleep out of his eyes and said, what's wrong with you guys? You've got no faith at all. Who is this man that wakes up and calms the wind and the waves? As far as he was concerned, his cradle was being rocked. As far as they were concerned, they were about to go under the water and perish forever. And Jesus said, okay, if it will make you feel better, I'll just stop all this stuff. Another effort of the enemy to kill him before the cross. But then I thought about the way they arrested him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember the passage from John where Jesus comes to the front of the garden and the Roman guard is there and he says, whom do you seek? Now, he knows the answer to that question. He wants to know if they know the answer to that question. Whom do you seek? Kind of like God in the garden saying, Adam, where are you? God knew where Adam was. Adam didn't know where Adam was. They did not know who they were arresting. And so they gave the, the, the summons, they gave the writ. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And we lose some of the impact of that in our English Bibles, but the very words that Jesus responds with in that passage are the very words that God gave to Moses in front of the burning bush when Moses said, When I go before Pharaoh, whom shall I say sent me? And God says, just tell him, I am. Not I was, not I will be, just tell him, I am. I am eternal, I am life, I am. That's all he needs to know, I am. And so Jesus is there in the garden and He says, whom do you seek? And they say, well, we're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene. And he says, I am. And they fall to the ground. Roman soldiers, Pharisees, temple guards, they fall on their backs. They're helpless before the King of glory. He wants them to know who it is they're arresting. And he wants them to know, if I'm going with you, it's because I choose to. Not because you have any power over me. I have all authority in the universe. And I will only go if I choose to go. 
And so he went with them. And then began the mocking, and the scourging, and the crown of thorns, and the beating. And I thought to myself, what was Jesus going through? Just imagine it for a moment. Set aside the insult. Set aside spitting in his face for a moment. Set aside the, the thorns pressed into his forehead and around his head and, and the muscles of his scalp. Set that aside for a moment and just imagine that lashing whip coming down on your back and ripping your skin apart. And put yourself in Jesus' shoes. What was his temptation? All he had to do was once again say, I am. Die. And the whole court would have fallen dead And like the sons of Korah, the earth would have opened and swallowed them into a fiery hell, and he would have walked out of there in glory and triumph. He did not have to do that. He didn't have to endure that. He did not have to fight that battle. Because he is the king of glory. He didn't have to do that. But he did it. And every effort, I'm sure, the enemy, the devil, Satan was saying, get up from here. Just like, you're the Son of God, make those stones into bread. You're the Son of God, demonstrate your power. You're the Son of God, you don't have to take this beating. What's wrong with you? Assert your glory. Stand up and escape the cross. But he fought the battle. He fought the battle through every lash. He fought the battle down the Via Dolorosa. He fought the battle as he was nailed to the cross. He fought the battle on the cross when he bore all the sin of the world in his body on the cross. He fought the battle and would not give up and would not shrink away and would not back down and would not assert His glory and demand His worship and honor and escape the cruelty. He went all the way. And all the while, Satan was trying to tempt Him to escape the cross. Mocking him as he hung there. Come down and save yourself. Who do you think you are? You're the king of Israel. But Satan was hurling the real taunt. Why are you letting this them do this to you, Jesus? Get off that cross and show your glory. Oh, because he knew that if Jesus left the cross, not one of us would ever be in heaven with the Father. Not one of us. Not one of us would see eternal life. Not one of us would experience the presence of God. All of us would die and live eternally in hell, separated from God. Just what the devil wanted. And Jesus never once backed down. 
He never gave up. He never gave in. His torture, his humiliation, his abuse was cruel as far as man could push it. As far as Satan could push it. To get him to stop it. But like a mighty warrior, he faced the battle. And he allowed the Father to lay upon him the sin of the whole world, even though it meant an awful separation in those moments in the triune Godhead where God the Father turned his back on God the Son. And he saw it through. Paul in Colossians paints that picture so clearly when he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. Listen to this. For in Him dwells all the fullness of deity in bodily form. And in Him You have been made complete. He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. The removal of the body of flesh, the carnal nature, the sin nature by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were raised with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him. Having forgiven all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, think of your certificate. Some of you here that were here Friday night wrote those sins down on that scroll. Your certificate condemning you to death. Your guilt. But He took it away, and it was hostile to us, but He took it away and nailed it to the cross. And here is the warrior. And when He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, the powers of darkness accusing us, He made a public display over them, having triumphed over them through His cross. This is a battle. This is a warrior going forth into battle. This is a mighty conqueror. This is the one who met the devil head to head, toe to toe. This is the one who for the joy set before Him, the church, you and me today, this is the one who for that glory endured the cross, despised the shame as a mighty conqueror defeated death and sin and hell and the devil on the cross. He is the mighty conqueror Who is the Lord of glory? Who is this King? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord who is mighty in battle. This is the Lord. Oh, and then the psalmist says, Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory can come in. Who is the King of glory? Ah, he says, This is the Lord of hosts. Because He is the Lord, strong and mighty in battle, now He is the Lord of hosts. you realize if Jesus had not gone to the cross, He would have been the Lord alone. 
would not have challenged his sovereignty. It would not have diminished his Godhead. It would in no way have deprived him of his glory and his majesty as king and lord and master. But he would have been God alone. The Lord by himself. But the psalmist says he is the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord of a great multitude. He is the Lord of a vast army. He is the Lord of a great family. He is the Lord of hosts, of multitudes. And who are they? Well, the writer of Hebrews says this, We don't necessarily this moment see everything subjected to Jesus, but here's what we see. We see Him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus, because of suffering and death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for Him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, listen to the phrase, in bringing many sons to glory. Many men, many women, many young people, many children, in bringing many to glory with Him. It was fitting for Him to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering for both He who sets them apart and those who are called out by Him from one Father, for which reason He is not ashamed to call them brethren. Did you know that today, because of the cross and the resurrection, you are the brother or sister of Jesus? Didn't He teach you to pray, Our Father in heaven? Didn't He say, you are my friends? Aren't we joint heirs with Jesus? We are His brothers and sisters today. Now and forever. Because of His suffering. Because He went to the cross, but is now risen again. He is the Lord of hosts the Lord of a multitude, because He has brought many sons and daughters to glory. Therefore, He is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim Thy name to My brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing Thy praise. And again, I will put My trust in Him. And again, behold, I am the children whom God has given Me. Since then the children share in flesh and blood. He Himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver those through who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You know, there's a very real sense, my friends, in which you cannot truly begin to live 
until you are no longer afraid to die. If you're afraid to die, you're not going to take very many risks in life. You won't go where it's not safe to go, and I'm not just talking about south side of Chicago in the middle of the night. I'm talking about dark places where the gospel is not named and people are hostile. I'm talking about carrying the gospel of the kingdom. I'm talking about doing great exploits in the name of the King of Kings. I'm talking about daily living without anxiety. I'm talking about being able to truly live because we're not afraid of death. But He was able to deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, He does not give help to angels, but He does give help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, He had to be made like His brethren in all things, that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. That word propitiation means that Jesus on the cross fully met and satisfied the wrath and the judgment of God for you and for me. For since He Himself was tempted in what He has suffered, He is able to come to the rescue of those who are tempted. My friends, who is this King of glory? This is Jesus, the Lord of hosts. He has a multitude now because He has won the victory and has brought many sons and daughters to glory with Him. And if you know Him today, it is because He went to the cross, because He defeated the powers of darkness, because He took the punishment of God in your place. And the Bible tells us that word propitiation, it's only used three times in the New Testament. It's such a beautiful word. Because it means that all the wrath that God had toward sinners, all of His judgment toward sin, all of His anger was exhausted, was spent on Jesus. Why he turned his back on him, he poured out his wrath and turned away. And Jesus bore it far more than the pummeling of the Roman guard or the hateful despising of the Jews. He received the wrath of God and he bore it. But when he cried those triumphant words from the cross, it is finished, he meant. The debt is paid in full. The door is open. The King of glory has risen. He has passed through the gates of eternity. He now sits enthroned at the right hand of God. He is waiting for the moment when time shall be no more and the human race has come to its ending time and He will come again as King of kings and Lord of lords in glory and power. He's waiting for that moment. But until then, the Holy Spirit is moving upon this planet, gathering unto Him hosts of people who will receive the good news, the message, 
that sins have been forgiven, that atonement, that payment has been made, that you today can not only escape the fear of death, but you can escape death itself. That you can live eternally in His presence. That with Him, you can be in glory. Who is the King of glory? Oh, it's the Lord mighty in battle. The Lord that went up against all the powers of darkness. The Lord that dealt with the the powers of hell. The Lord that met Satan head to head, toe to toe. The Lord that went to the cross and defeated the power of sin and broke the bondage of death. The Lord that received the wrath of God and triumphed. It is the Lord strong and mighty in battle. Who is this King of glory? Oh, this is the Lord of hosts. The Lord of a multitude now who follow Him. He is risen now and forever. And He is coming again. Friend, I want to say to you this morning, I I cannot pass a moment like this on Resurrection Sunday without making as clear as I possibly can the truth of this gospel message, the good news. Jesus died for you. He went all the way to the cross for you. He did not back down for you. He did not raise his head up from that whipping post break those bonds, call 10,000 angels and overpower Rome and rise triumphant in glory in that moment and say, who do you think you are? But He took the punishment and bore the sin and paid the price all the way to the cross. And He gives us the motivation. What was driving Him? What caused all of this to happen? For God so loved the world, you, He loved you, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And as Jesus knelt in the garden, praying over all that He was about to experience, the writer of Hebrews says, who for the joy set before Him. That's you, my friend. You are His joy. You are the one that He had in His mind. When the devil said, get up from that post and assert yourself, He said, no. Marge will never come to glory. Ron will never know me. Claudia will never have eternal life if I do that. I will not. I will not. The joy set before Him. He endured the cross. Shrugged away the shame as if it meant nothing. In comparison to the apple of His eye. That's you. And if you're here this morning, and you have not seen the love of God, and the price that Jesus paid for you, Will you allow in this moment God the Holy Spirit to open your eyes? Will you recognize that He went to the cross for you? 
where you see that He died for you, that He took your place, that He has paid for your sin. And right now, in this moment of time, this Resurrection Sunday morning, right now today, the Holy Spirit of God is pleading, saying, for you, for you, this has been done. Will you turn from yourself? Will you turn from your sin and guilt? Will you lay it upon the altar, upon the cross? Will you, will you give it up? Will you ask me for the forgiveness that I have so freely purchased for you? It cost him a great deal. It cost you nothing. And will you turn to me and let me be the Lord of your life? I have loved you with an everlasting love. We have this moment. Not one person in this room has a guarantee of one more. We have this moment. And in this moment, you can make the decision and pass from death to life and become part of the host of the glory of the Lord. He extends to you that invitation. He went into battle for you. He paid for your soul. He rose triumphant to give you life. He extends to you his invitation, come to me, come to me. I will cleanse, I will heal, I will restore. I will be with you all the days of your life and I will take you with me to be in glory. And you will never die. Come to me. Father, I pray this morning in Jesus' name that your Holy Spirit would speak now to us. And if there's anyone in this room who has never taken that step of faith, crossed over the divide that separates from death into life, from darkness into light. Perhaps they've never realized, Lord Jesus, what a great battle you fought for them, what a great price you paid, but you are the King of glory and you did it for them. You give them faith this morning now to believe, to turn from sin, to turn to Jesus, to receive life eternal, and to walk forever, born again to a living hope. Lord, do your work in our hearts. And for those of us who know you, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you never backed down, that you never gave in, that you went all the way to the cross and you died there, despising the shame for me. Thank you, Lord Jesus. It's in your precious name that we pray.
You know, if you're here today,